0: Earlier this month we had a uh, a disruption of sorts to our regular rhythm of things because we kept the kids with us on the first Sunday of the month when we heard from Charlotte Allen and considered the call to to bring her on as our minister to children. So this morning we're making up for that by having kids crew today. Normally we do kids crew the first three Sundays of the month and then on the fourth Sunday they're with us. This month They were with us on the first Sunday. And so we're going to dismiss for kids crew this morning. So all of our kids who are fourth grade and under are invited to make their way down to the front and head upstairs with our leaders for a time of kids crew worship this morning. They're in the book of Acts as well. As we're studying through the book of Acts, we'll be in Acts chapter 6 and 7 this morning. So I invite you to turn your Bible to Acts 6. We're going to see the story of Stephen in Acts chapters 6 and 7. Stephen is often referred to as the first martyr of the church, but I want to define that phrase, that term martyr. Where Where does that idea come from? A martyr is someone who who dies for what they believe, someone who dies for for their belief in the sense that we're considering it, of course. We're referring to Stephen in this context or, or really throughout church history, history of Christianity, anyone who has offered up their life as defense of the faith, standing for what they believe, holding fast to their convictions and their faith. And so there have been many martyrs through the centuries of Christian history But Stephen is commonly referred to as the first Christian martyr because here we are just a few days, a few few weeks perhaps removed from the time of Pentecost and we see this explosive growth of the early church. We've been studying that the last few weeks in Acts, the first five chapters. And now here we are in Acts chapter 6 and we're introduced to Stephen, a little bit more about that and its full context in just a minute, It was the early church father and the author Tertullian who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And in in writing that, what Tertullian was saying is that you can kill us, but you can't stop us. Because when you kill us, all you do is you prove what it is that we believe in. When we die for our faith, we bear witness to the hope that springs eternal through faith in Jesus. And so famously, he, he made the statement in, in his work, Apologeticus, if you know, an apologetic is a defense, and so in in offering a defense of the faith in, a de, in an early written defense of Christian faith, Tertullian wrote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church that Phrase has echoed throughout Christian history. It has remained. It's a very famous, I suppose, probably in all likelihood. If you've been associated with the church, if you've been around the church much, you've probably heard that before. Even if you didn't know precisely where it came from or to what you might attribute that, but the idea is simply this: that even in death, we have the opportunity to offer a witness to Christ. Now. This morning, as we're referring to the story of Stephen, we're going to draw some application, some really, I think, really important application from Stephen's life and Stephen's witness. And when we talk about Stephen being a martyr, I just want to say clearly up front that I don't mean to equate that when you and I stand for what is right, that we are being martyred for our faith. We aren't martyrs in that sense. There truly are, even today even actually around our world today there are people perhaps even this very day there will there will be people in our world who will offer their lives for Christ standing strong in their faith not recanting their belief that actually is still common today in american christianity many times we're so far removed from that from the idea because of the freedoms that we enjoy that that Maybe we feel like well that 's something that used to happen, but actually uh, there there are many different groups that sort of study uh, martyrdom, if you will that there 's a group called Voice of the Martyrs that perhaps you 've heard of they 're based out of Oklahoma out of Bartlesville, Oklahoma. There are other groups that study Christian movements, gospel movements around the globe and they and they tell us that even each year there are there are thousands even in some instances hundreds of thousands they believe who die for their christian faith their christian belief in reaches of the globe where they don't share the freedoms that we have and so i don't mean to say i don't mean to trivialize their sacrifice in some way by saying yeah when you know when you and i are inconvenienced in some day, in some way that we're made a martyr and yet in a very real sense, we, we can't control that, right? What we can control is that when we find ourselves in, in the moment where we have an opportunity, face-to-face with an opportunity to stand for Christ, to bear witness for Him, to remain steadfast and true in spite of trials, in spite of opposition, in spite of the things that we may be against, we have a very real choice to make. Will I stand for Jesus, or will I take the path of least resistance? My hope this morning is to encourage you to challenge us even through the witness of Stephen that we would stand learning from the witness learning from the example of Stephen. Stephen is a really an incredible figure as we'll come to see in these two chapters. And there's very brief there's a very brief Uh, Treatment here really in this part of Acts. This is the only place in the Bible, in fact, that we hear of Stephen really, that that we know about Stephen and Stephen's witness. And yet, Stephen has a profound impact on even our lives today because what we come to see at the very close of Stephen's story in the early chapters of Acts, or in the early verses, excuse me, of Acts chapter 8, is that there was a young man who stood by at the moment of Stephen's death, and his name was Saul. We're going to see in a few weeks that Saul later has his name changed to Paul and becomes, I suppose we might say, the most significant uh, evangelist, the most significant Christian witness perhaps ever in, in the history of Christianity. And Stephen has a direct influence upon and a direct link to Paul through his witness, but not only because of the way that he influenced Paul, but in the way that he that he lived for Christ in his moment. when When it was his turn to bear witness, we see that Stephen had a, a profound impact, and so let's just retrace our steps to get to Stephen. We see that the church begins to grow, and they begin to have influence. We're even going to see in the story of Acts 6, that the gospel begins to spread outside of Jerusalem. What starts in Jerusalem spreads from the the area of the temple with the Jews into the area of Judea with Greek speaking Jews they, that what referred to here in Acts chapter 6 as Hellenists and I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute but then from there it, it spreads even further to Samaria and even eventually beyond Samaria into the Gentile world what was it that Jesus says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 he says you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We have in these early chapters of Acts just the very fulfillment of the word of Jesus spoken to his disciples as the gospel begins to spread and the church grows. And Stephen is a a key figure in this. What we're gonna see through studying Stephen's life is that Stephen has a tremendous impact because he was a servant Stephen has a tremendous impact because he was sincere. Stephen has a tremendous impact because when the opportunity comes, he stood strong in the faith. And Stephen has a tremendous impact because he suffered well for the sake of the gospel. And so this morning, I want us to consider the life of the witness of Stephen As we learn lessons from his witness. If you were listening, I just actually gave away all four points. And so uh, we'll go back and hit them here. But some of you may have caught that. But the first lesson that we learn from Stephen is this. Is that service will build the church. Service will build the church. Look with me at Acts chapter 6. We're going to read the first seven verses together now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the hellenists arose against the hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution you may think to yourself what is a hellenist well a hellenist is a greek-speaking jew okay is a greek-speaking jew the jews who were from Jerusalem and in in, in Judah, the surrounding area, many of them spoke the language of Aramaic and in the course of their worship, they would study the scriptures and, and the scriptures would be taught in the Hebrew language. But there were many Jews beyond the immediate reaches of Jerusalem who at this point commonly spoke the language of Greek. Why Greek? Well, again, it's tied to history. It's connected to history. If you go back and and you learn about the the figure Alexander the Great who conquered much of this part of the world, Alexander grew his kingdom. He captured the area of, of Jerusalem, Judah, the surrounding region. And then following Alexander's death, His kingdom was divided amongst four of his generals. And those generals continued to rule for a season of time. There actually was a revolt by a group of Jews a couple of hundred years before the time of Jesus. There was a a key figure in that revolt whose name was Judas Maccabeus. Maybe you've heard of him before. The name literally means the hammer, Judas the hammer. What a great nickname that was. And he led a group of Jews that revolted against the, uh, the remnants of the, of the Greek uh, kingdom that was ruling in that time. But that only, freedom lasted only for a brief season before the Roman army rose to prominence. And so it was uh, about 70 years or so before the time of Jesus. And at this point, uh, now that we're into these days, roughly 100 years Uh, removed from the events of Acts chapter 6, you see the rise of the Romans. But the influence of the Greeks still weighed heavily upon these regions. The Greeks, one of the things that they did is they introduced a common language throughout the, the Greek kingdom and also a common culture. The name of the Greek culture, the term that was used for Greek culture, was Hellenism. Hellenism, which comes from the Greek word Hellenos. And so that's where we get this this term Hellenists. But here, what's significant, what I want you to see about this, is that the the rift, the, the schism, the, the disagreement that exists here is really one that's racial in a lot of ways. It, it's one that is that is, uh, it's a sort of a, a racial divide. Nah, it, I don't want to lean into that too hard, but, uh, but it, is, it is a significant difference between groups of people who believed in the same things, who had a, a similar uh, faith ancestry, a similar shared history of their faith, and yet in so many ways were worlds apart, culturally and otherwise. And so the Hellenists raise this complaint about their widows being neglected in the daily distribution let's keep reading verse 2 and the 12 that is the original 12 right well the original 11 plus the the extra 12 right the, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on on them and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now there are several things that are covered here and and, and so I want to let's back up and let's consider these together. But remember the point that I made initially, service will build the church. We're connecting this to the example of Stephen And how important it is for us to serve others to serve to serve as following the example of stephen following the example of christ who served who didn't come to be served but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many jesus told his disciples you can go to mark chapter 10 verse 45 and see where jesus said that so essentially what you have here this division that's arisen within the life of the early church. The disciples gather together and they say, listen, it's not right for us to have to deal with these things and, and neglect our, our primary responsibility, which is the word. Now you need to hear a couple of things about that. First of all, this is not meant to demean the work of ministering to widows and the distribution to the widows. This is not somehow the disciples saying, oh, that's beneath us. That work is beneath us. Rather, this is a product of the growth of the church as the church has grown and multiplied now it is believed broadly that at this point the church was probably at the minimum in the in in the range of twenty thousand or so and so there are thousands upon thousands who have come to faith in christ in these early days of the church and and the needs are great we read even last week about how they had things in common. People were selling land. They were offering up what they had as resources to provide for the needs of others. There was a spirit of unity, a spirit of cooperation, of partnership that existed in the life of the early church, and the church was growing and thriving. And yet now there there tends to be some division, some, some, some struggle that happens in the church. You know, it's, it's, it's no coincidence that there still are tensions and struggles that exist in the life of churches today. I don't mean to burst anybody's bubble, but there are tensions that exist even in, in this church from time to time. We don't always all see eye to eye on the same things. And so there are times when people don't agree about everything, about what we ought to do in, in all of those things. And yet in all of that, our call is to be unified. Not, not that we would all see things the same, Unity is not uniformity, meaning we don't all have to agree on everything. We don't all have to see things the same way. But even in that, we need to have a spirit of charity, a spirit of unity, a spirit of cooperation that we agree together to focus on what matters the most, to keep the main thing the main thing so that we accomplish the mission that we've been given, which is to love people of faith in Christ and multiply disciples. Where did we get that mission? came directly from our study of the book of Acts several years ago we see God working in the life of the early church. Church today isn't so different from the church then. And so in order to deal with this, the disciples urged the church to appoint what we largely believe to be the first group of deacons. Now the word deacon is never used here in this text. It talks about their service, how they waited tables, the, the, the waiting of tables as, it, as it's referred to there. That word is actually from the Greek word diakonos, which is the word for a servant or, or, or serv- service. It's the verb form of that word. So this is the deacons who are deaking, right? I mean, this is the deacons who are serving, the servants who are called to serve, here in the life of the early church. We, we believe, I believe, that these were the first deacons, even though they're not officially referred to by that title. In fact, when you, when you study the scripture, you actually only find two references in the New Testament specifically to deacons. You find a reference in Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, where Paul is giving his opening address to the, the church in Philippi, and he talks about Paul, and I'm gathered with the elders and the deacons. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you find instruction for deacons. That word is used, that term is used again in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Those are the only two places that officially refer to this office of a deacon. But we believe that these were the first deacons, the first set aside from the church. You know what else is interesting about these deacons? When you study the names of these seven men who are set aside here, all seven of these names are Greek names. These are Greek men who are set aside. So the Greek speaking Jews, the Greek speaking number who, again, we don't know this to be sure, but it seems perhaps likely at this point outnumber the Hebrews within the church. Are They set aside these seven men to serve and to make sure that the disciples can focus on their primary task, and they can help administrate the other function, the other work of the church. Their job, essentially, is to preserve unity, is to serve and preserve unity by letting the disciples focus on the ministry of the word, and they were going to take care of other needs. That's still, to this day, really what we task our deacons with, is that they are to serve, preserve unity, to work for the good of the church. The deacons aren't a board, they aren't elders, they aren't. That you know, that's that's not the way that we operate. I know, there that's been a model that's been followed by a number of churches, but that's not the way that the scriptures lay it out. It's not the practice of First Baptist Church of Chickasha. These are men who serve, who lead by being least among many. They lead by caring for the lost. They lead by looking to be sacrificial, and. and and to give themselves away to serve the needs of others. And you know what's incredible about their example? Is look at verse 7. Look again at verse 7. Look at what happens. Things were already going well and we see the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why is that important? that a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's talk about that for a minute. Because the priests represented the Hebrews. Remember, initially, the division here was between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The priests represent the Hebrews. These were the guys who were steeped in Jewish Uh, in in the Jewish ways, in the Jewish traditions. They were steeped in the religious ways. They were literally the ones responsible for the administration of the faith. And God worked so powerfully through the example of these Greek-speaking Jews that many of these other staunch religious people came to faith. Revival breaks out when the religious people start getting saved, doesn't it? And that's exactly what happens here. And the church multiplies greatly, even beyond Jerusalem. I, I think what a, what a great way that this is even worded, that the priests became obedient to the faith. It's not just that they ascended to the faith, assented to it, right, that they, that they believed in it. It's not just that they, that they gave lip service to the faith. They became obedient. Because how do you know if you really believe something? It's, what you do with that belief. Do you you obey it? Do you put it into practice? Do you live it out? And a great number of the priests began to live out faith in Jesus. So service builds the church. Because of the example of Stephen and these others, we see that the church grows and it continues to multiply disciples and people are reached. And so there we have this introduction to this group of seven, but really Stephen is the key player that we continue to follow his example. And we see through Stephen's example that sincerity will disarm your opponents. When you are sincere, now sincerity itself is not enough, because you can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. You can be sincere, but you can trust in and believe in the wrong things, okay? So sincerity itself isn't enough. But when you are sincerely devoted to, when you are fully committed to the truth and the right things, God will use that example in a powerful way, even with people who might oppose you, even with people who might say, yeah, I don't believe that. And that's exactly what we see in verse seven through Stephen's service and his sincere faith even these priests who would have been opponents to Stephen in a sense who would have been opposed to faith in Jesus and all that represented because again it it really meant in so many ways it meant that that they were wrong they were responsible for the death of Christ and and all the ramifications that would come through that Stephen's going to point that out abundantly clear in his sermon in just a moment. And yet, because of the sincerity of Stephen's faith, many came to faith in Jesus. Let's, let's keep reading verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Again, we've seen in Acts that the evidence of faith is the presence of the signs and wonders. And so here it is in the life of Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged, the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now again, these were all different, these are all different uh, we'll call them tribes or or groups, subgroups within the Jewish faith. And they're each one of them represented some different power structures, some different ethnicities who were a part of the Jewish faith, these Jews who were scattered throughout the the surrounding territory in these lands where they had been carried off in the period of conquest. And again, that goes back to their their history, if you know a little bit about Jewish history. Verse 10, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Why? Why? Because Stephen was sincerely committed to the truth. And even though they might argue against him, ultimately they can gain no real ground because Stephen was firmly committed to the truth. And the truth wins, ultimately. The truth wins. It may not always seem like that. In fact, sometimes it's really playing the long game. But in the end, the truth will win. And that's exactly what Stephen was committed to. Verse 11 for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us and gazing at him all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel it's interesting here that the charge they bring against stephen is that he has that he has sinned against the traditions given to them by moses but then we see this this uh, this phrase here is that his face was like the face of an angel who else was it that had a face that glowed radiantly like the face of an angel which was a demonstration that he had been in the presence of God it was moses himself wasn't even even their own even their own false witness against stephen really is just sort of a house of cards of sorts but we see that stephen remained sincere and that because of his sincere commitment to the truth It it disarms his opponents to the point that the only thing, the only real recourse they have is to just make up lies against him, to just make up lies, to bring false witness and false accusations against him, because he is so sincere, has so much integrity that they. And again, this is about our example of from Stephen, right? That we would be challenged. To live with such a sincere commitment to the truth, with with the type of integrity that will win the day in the end, it's really common that when you feel attacked in some way, that you want to you want to go on the defense, right? We want to defend ourselves, and I'm not saying there isn't a place for a, a healthy and even a robust defense of of, of our faith, or even of your character. But what I find to be so convicting about Stephen's example is Stephen doesn't try to get into the 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 mud of, of things here he's he's not worried Stephen's goal is not to try to say I would never and defend himself instead he just uses this as the opportunity to preach Jesus he just takes what they would say against him the lies that they that they trumped up against him and he uses it to preach Christ and so I think, again, that what we learn from this is that strength will seize an opportunity to declare the gospel. Strength, Stephen, no doubt, is a, demonstrates unreal strength. And so they, they bring him before the Sanhedrin. They ask him, what does he say about these things? And Stephen offers a defense. And, and that's really what you have, the bulk of Acts chapter 7. I'm not going to read all of it, but you can go back and you can read. And essentially, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen takes on the sacred cows of of. Zionism, as we would call it today, or the, the Hebrew faith. He takes on the sacred cows of their faith. He points to, first of all, the land, their belief in the promised land, and that that made them uh, special people. He, he points to the law and their devotion to the law, but not just their devotion to the law, but an unhealthy uh, devotion that they had to the law. That, and and and, and Moses the way that they exalted Moses rather than God and then he points to the temple and again how the temple was given to them as a place that they might meet together God but they had so perverted and so distorted what God gave them and, and Stephen even says to them essentially you guys rejected Jesus Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise of God to make a people that's what the land represents Jesus was the fulfillment of the law of God which brings cleansing Jesus was the fulfillment of the temple, the place where God meets with us, that God dwells with us, that he tabernacled with us and dwelled among us. And so Stephen essentially in his sermon points to their their outright rejection of Jesus. And as you can imagine, that didn't sit really well with these leaders. In fact, let's skip forward to chapter 7. Look at verse 51. Look at the way he ends his sermon. Aren't you glad? You Hopefully you'll be glad that I don't use phrases like this when I preach to you. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you received, you who received the law as delivered by the angels, and did not keep it. Now, it, I, You probably don't have to know a lot about their faith and their practice to realize that this this was an outright accusation these are fighting words that Stephen has just delivered to them and and unless you don't necessarily see that go to the very next verse now when they heard these things they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him I don't know exactly what that might have looked like, but I imagine people so angry that, that they were incensed to the point, I mean, it's like literally they're grinding their teeth. They're ready to go. And we'll see in a moment just how angry they were. But first, consider again Stephen's witness that semen demonstrates uncommon strength because when the moment came, when the, when the lights were on, the spotlight was on, so to speak, Stephen does not shy away, knowing that what he has to say is going to land him in trouble. Stephen leans in. He doubles down because in, in his spirit, he, he knew this was an opportunity to preach Christ. And so with great power and authority, Stephen proclaims Jesus as the fulfillment and the rejection of the Jewish leadership of the gospel and and their outright rejection of God's authority because they rejected Jesus. Strength will seize an opportunity to declare the gospel. When we we live with strength, we will declare. Now, again, this doesn't mean... That you, need to, that you need to do it with, with vile hatred in your heart. There's no hatred here. There's no animus in Stephen's heart. Just a, a sincere and, and a total devotion to the truth. He's just saying it as it is, but those words didn't sit so well with the leadership. Finally, we see this in Stephen's example, that suffering well will soften calloused hearts. Even though that's not immediately obvious, we understand that eventually Stephen's example here and how he suffered well for the gospel has a profound impact, especially, as I've said already, on the life of Saul, who would later become this great evangelist for the faith. Let's pick up reading again, verse 55, chapter 7, verse 55. But he, he being Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What an incredible example. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to be real graphic or gruesome about this, but I've reflected a lot this morning, uh, this week, rather. I shared this this morning with our staff. We gathered together and we spent some time in prayer before church. And I shared with them that I've reflected a lot this week on this scene played out in a way that I really haven't in the past. I've known about this story for, well, for a long time, but this week in thinking about it, I've replayed this in my mind like a scene from a movie. Imagine, they're so enraged at what Stephen has said that they seize him, and they drag him outside, and they pick up rocks and begin to hurl rocks at him, bludgeoning him to death. It's a gruesome an awful way to die. And in the midst of that, what is Stephen's witness? Not to run. It's not to scream curses at them. It's not to try to defend himself in some way. It's not, instead, what does Stephen do? He he cries out, Lord, forgive them. Forgive them of their sin. Now, first, that doesn't seem to have a really profound effect. In fact, we read in the opening verses of chapter 8, that Saul, this same Saul that we just met, is ravaging the church. He's ravaging the church. And yet, I can't help but think, the Bible doesn't tell us this, so admittedly, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here. This is some conjecture. But I can't help but think that Paul couldn't let go of the scene that unfolded in front of him and he would replay that in his mind's eye thinking about the brutal death that Stephen suffered in his own presence really in so many ways under under Paul's authority they laid their cloaks at his feet which is a way of saying that Paul sort of oversaw this whole thing and yet in replaying that. God brought brokenness. This same Paul who would go on later in his years to have the very mindset of Stephen, the very mindset that Tertullian wrote about, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Paul essentially lived in such a way that you couldn't stop him. You were going to beat him? Great. That was an opportunity for him to bear witness to Jesus. You were going to imprison him? Great. He's going to lead his captors, uh, his his jailers to Christ. You're going to, you're going to, punish him in some way you're going to torture him then in his in his pains he's going to cry out the greatness of Jesus you couldn't stop this guy you're going to take his life for him all the better an opportunity to bear witness to his faith in Jesus to be absent from the bodies to be present with Jesus and so to give glory to the Lord and meet him face to face you couldn't stop this guy where did Paul learn that example well at least in part I think he was was challenged by what he saw in the witness of Stephen. But what's more is, think about this. Stephen's name, the name Stephen, actually comes from the Greek word Stephanus. Did you know that the Greek word Stephanus is the word for crown? The Greek word Stephanus is the word for crown. So Stephen's name literally means a crown. In James chapter 1, verse 12, James would write about blessed are those who endure persecution because they will receive a crown that's been promised to them. Stephen was the living embodiment of that promise, of that truth. That he received a crown, a crown of righteousness, not because of something Stephen had done. And that's what you need to hear. This is not this is not meant to say, Oh, Stephen is such a great guy, and if you'll be a little better and you'll work a little harder and try a little more, then you might be a really great witness like Stephen was. Stephen's strength came from his relationship with Jesus. Stephen's strength came from the fact that he was totally committed to, totally surrendered to Jesus, to the point that even if you were to take his life, he was willing to give it so that others might be pointed to faith in Jesus. That He might stand for the truth. Again, it's connected to that idea, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But what's more, I, wanna, I want you to see this. Look at where Stephen's real example comes from. Stephen offered his life for those who who rejected God's promise. And even as they punished him, he cried out, Lord, forgive them. Lord, may they come to know you. Makes me think of the words of Jesus on the cross when he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen is just following the example of Jesus. Again, we don't know for certain that, G- that Stephen was physically present at Jesus' crucifixion. But based on how he lived in his final moments, I have to believe that at, the, at minimum, he knew what it was Jesus had done. In all likelihood, he had been a witness to the crucifixion of Jesus. He had seen Jesus offer his life, and Stephen thought to himself, if Jesus will lay down his life, then I'll lay down my life. Or is it that Jesus said to his disciples in his final moments with them, John chapter 15, greater love is no one than this, and he would lay down his life for his brother. That's what Stephen did. He laid down his life so that others would come to know Jesus. I wonder, would you be willing to lay down your life? And I'm not talking again. I'm not talking about a physical death. Could it come to that, perhaps? I I can't see into your future any better than I can see into my own. But without hesitation, I can say it will require some element of sacrifice, some element of surrender, some element of giving away of ourselves. When I was a teenager, there was a man in our church, uh, a man named Ron Pepper, who was a, uh, a great man of God and and uh, just a humble guy, just a very just a very normal average guy, loved the Lord, served in the church, uh, served in the in the nursery at the church where I grew up for many years. He rocked babies in the nursery uh, in, in the church he was just a, a humble man and when I was a teenager, he was diagnosed with leukemia, and i don 't know a lot of the ins and outs of the details of it, but what I do remember is that his battle with cancer was. Long and it played itself out over many years. And I'll never forget that in the midst of all of that, he, he remained faithful to the church through the treatments, through the trials, even at the point where doctors told him, There's nothing else we can do. Like we, they, they, they realized, We can't, we don't have the medicine, we don't have the technology, or the ability to beat this cancer. That short of a miracle, this will take your life and even at that point, he kept coming to church. He kept singing in the choir. I'll, I, I shared with some others earlier that I have this memory of the, the color of his skin in his, in his last days, and how his skin became this, this odd color of, of gray, and again, I'm not trying to be gross, but I'm just saying, I mean, it's seared in my memory that this guy was near death, and yet Every Sunday, you could find him. He was a tall guy. He was about six foot six. You could find him front and center in the back row of the choir, singing to the Lord, offering praise, declaring his faith and his trust in Jesus no matter what would come. And the, and the lesson that I learned from that as a 17-year-old boy was how to die well. And I thought a lot about that this week as well. I thought a lot about that, reflected on the fact that, you know, in Stephen's life, Stephen's greatest sermon was not what he preached in acts 7 but rather the way that he died it's those words lord forgive them of their sin the greatest sermon that stephen preached was in the way that he suffered and died suffering well has the has the ability to soften callous hearts i pray that it wouldn't require your life and yet if it did would you be willing would you, would you endure suffering for the sake of Christ? My challenge is that we would be people who would build the church through our service, that we would have the kind of sincere faith that disarms people because we're so devoted to, committed to the truth, that the only thing they can do is make up lies against us, that we would stand strong when the opportunity comes and proclaim the gospel, declare the gospel, both in word and deed, and that even if necessary, we would suffer well for the sake of gospel. And who's the ultimate example of all those things? It's actually not Stephen. It's actually Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is a true and better Stephen because Jesus served well by meeting your greatest need with his death on the cross. Jesus was sincere and sincerely devoted to the truth and justice and righteousness in its truest forms. Jesus stood strong when faced with opposition and he suffered well so that you and I could be forgiven and set free today may we look to Jesus and may we endure and persevere in spite of all that we are against knowing that Jesus is our ultimate example. And if there's never been a time when you've trusted him, when you've surrendered your life to him, then I pray that even today you might be challenged to trust in Jesus by faith, just as Stephen did, just as others have, that you might receive the power of His Holy Spirit, the strength that comes through the indwelling presence of God in your heart and your life, that you would know Him by faith and live for Him, that others around you may trust in Him as well. So I want to ask if you would to bow your heads with me and close your eyes as we move into a time of invitation, a time of response this morning, and even as we pray together. I want to pray that God would speak so clearly to us that we would know each and every one of us exactly how it is that we're to respond to him today. And if God is calling you in this moment to surrender your life to him and you sense the urging of his spirit to trust him by faith, then I would challenge you even in this moment that you would come and that you would surrender your life to Jesus when we sing in a moment. And so Lord, our prayer is that you would speak through us today through my words and through the declaration of your goodness as we, as we sing these words that Lord, that you, Jesus, would be at the center of all of this. And as we point to you, as we bear witness to you, as we even now trust in you, may you move among us. Lord, stir the hearts of any who might not know you that they would trust in you by faith. Stir the hearts of everyone that we would live for you, fully devoted to you. Move among us, we pray now, Jesus. Amen.